This is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. The Magi visit the Messiah. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Sometimes, occasionally, you get the gift that's just perfect for you. On my 17th birthday, my family threw me a party and I was a fairly awkward 17-year-old, as you can see. And um, when I was 17, I didn't really feel like I had that many friends. But that night, for that birthday party, seeing all the friends that had gathered together, some having come from far away, it actually had a big impact on me. And what really had the biggest impact on me was that they'd all put money in and bought me my own guitar. Now, before that, I'd just been playing Dad's 12-string guitar. I felt like a 50-year-old country music singer. But the guitar that they'd got me was my own six-string guitar. Here's a picture of it a couple of years after my 17th birthday. And it was the perfect gift. No one had, any, had ever done anything like that for me before. The way that they'd all secretly put in money with me having no idea, it really moved me, that gift. And it, it even changed how I viewed myself. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But my point is that the right gift at the right time can be incredibly powerful. It can be life-changing even. It can make all the difference for how you view life and how you view yourself. I wonder if anyone here today got a gift like that. Possibly not, because it's pretty hard to find life-changing gifts. It's pretty hard just to find good gifts at all, isn't it? Every year when I try to think how I can uh, buy a gift for my wife, Kathy, that communicates how much I love her, I just can't seem to pull it off. Blueberries this year, you know, a blueberry plant, it just doesn't quite capture it. The right gift at the right time is really hard to come by. We've been unboxing Christmas these last couple of weeks. We've been talking about what Christmas is all about as we've been moving through Matthew's Gospel, his account of Jesus' life. And Christmas really is all about the right gift given at the right time. 
It's all about God giving us that kind of gift that's powerful, that's life-changing. But the reason that we've been unboxing Christmas is because it doesn't always feel life-changing. It doesn't always feel like a powerful gift. Sometimes Christmas feels more like this toy. This is a toy we have at home. It's nice. It's cute. Let's be honest, it's a bit sickly. And after that button has been hit for the 50th time in a row, it gets a bit irritating. What this toy doesn't communicate is that Christmas is powerful and life-changing. It just doesn't communicate that. But Christmas really is powerful and life-changing. And the reason is because of what it communicates. It tells us something about God. It tells us something about ourselves And it tells us something about where we're at with God. All truly great gifts tell you something about the giver and about the receiver and something about their relationship. All truly great great gifts do that. And that's definitely true with the gift of Christmas. God's gift to us at Christmas is Jesus. It's his own self in human form. His gift is all about him going to incredible lengths to save a relationship, actually to to create a relationship. On Tuesday afternoons, I've started taking one of my kids out for an hour to kind of invest in our relationship. And I I take a different kid, one of my own four, but a different kid (laughs) each week. And for some reason, they all want to go to the sushi train at TTP, where you can see it up in that picture there. So I've been eating a lot of sushi lately. They're the kind of lengths I'm willing to go to for relationship with my kids. It's impressive, I know. Now, clearly I would go to far, far greater lengths to keep my relationship with my kids strong. But think about the lengths that God goes to to create relationship with us. God exchanges glory and power for weakness, for vulnerability, for poverty. He comes in Jesus as a baby. He comes to those who would ignore him, some who would even hate him. He gives himself to us to make it possible for us to have a relationship with him. That is extraordinary lengths that God goes to. And so what does this gift that God gives us, what does it tell us about him, the giver? Well, it tells us that God is good. It tells us that he's compassionate. It tells us that he's so determined to make a way that we can know him that he's prepared to come to us as one of us, eventually even dying for us. Properly understood, God's gift communicates that he is kind and generous and passionate about knowing us. But what about us? What does the gift of Christmas tell us about ourselves, us the receivers? Well, it tells us two things that seem to contradict each other. First, it tells us that we are valued by God. You know the the gift of the guitar that I was talking about at the beginning? Uh, A few years after I'd received that gift, I got it out of its its case when I was at uni and the neck had snapped on it. It was was terrible. It was unfixable really. But you know, in some ways I, I, I was sad but I wasn't too upset because the real value of that gift wasn't so much the guitar for me. It was what the gift communicated. What stayed with me long after the guitar broke was that I mattered to people. Like I said, I was an insecure 17-year-old for good reason. 
I wasn't confident in who I was. And that gift at that time told me that my friends and family considered me worthwhile, valuable even. And that's really what had the impact on me and changed how I even viewed myself. The gift of Christmas tells you that you're more valued than you could imagine or dream. You might not know it. You might not feel it. And life may have made you doubt it. But God gives himself to us in Jesus because we matter to him. More than we'll ever fully understand, actually. But the other thing that this gift tells us about ourselves might seem to contradict that. Because the other thing that this gift tells us is that we're lost to God. And I don't mean lost like a kid in TTP at Christmas time. We're more lost like a teenager who's moved out of home, who's going nowhere in life, and who's broken off all contact with their parents and won't even acknowledge their existence. God's gift also says to us that we are cut off from Him, that we're more messed up than we realise. Because you don't give a gift like this for no reason. You don't cross heaven and hell like God is crossing unless there's a desperate problem to be overcome. There's a way of thinking these days that God's there always waiting for us if we want Him, but we can take Him or leave Him and it doesn't really matter. And we feel that God should be happy with that. God should be big enough to accept us just as we are and accept whatever we offer Him. And if God does have a problem with us, well, really, that's His problem. But His gift tells us where our relationship with Him is really at. His gift says to us, we've got Him all wrong. It says, yes, God has a problem with us. And no, He's not happy for us to flip that back on him he's not happy for us to say to him that he should just be happy with whatever we're wanting to dish up to him because that's not how relationships work and that's definitely not how relationship with God works his gift says to us we're desperately lost we've cut ourselves off from God we're what the Bible calls sinners that's where the relationship's at from our end we've so devalued the relationship that we've killed it But from God's end, nonetheless, still, He values us. He considers us worthwhile. And Christmas is all about God taking drastic action to break through to us, to make relationship with Him possible. It really is a powerful and life-changing gift, if we see it for what it is. You know, in this world, there is nothing more powerful than relationships. There is nothing more life-changing than relationships. And the greatest of all relationships, the most, the most powerful, the most life-giving relationship we can ever know is a relationship with our Creator, our God. But relationships are always two-sided, aren't they? Which means God's gift to us is only powerful and life-changing if we respond to the gift. And that's really what I want to talk about today. I want to change gear a bit and just for the next few minutes, think through how it is that we could respond to God's gift. There are only really three responses that we could have and these three responses we've already seen in the passage that was read for us just before. They were the only three responses possible back then when Jesus first came and they're still the only three responses that are possible today. 
So we're going to very quickly look at these three responses as we see them in Matthew's account of Jesus' life that was read earlier. And the first response to Jesus that we find is that he's pretty much ignored. You know, if these people were singing the carol that we're about to sing in a minute, O Come All Ye Faithful, in the chorus they'd sing, O Come, Let Us Ignore Him. So let me set the scene for a bit. These strange men called Magi, as Brian said before, or wise men, they turn up in Jerusalem and they say in verse 2, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These foreigners, these Magi, they're interested in the birth of Jesus, but his own people in Jerusalem are caught by surprise. Back then, great kings were thought to be connected with events in the skies. And people like the Magi from Persia really did study the skies. And for some reason, God stoops to speak the language of these Magi. He gives them the kind of sign that they can understand, a star. Now, whether the star was a natural phenomenon like an alignment of planets or a supernova or a comet, there are several possibilities from that time, or or whether it was simply a supernatural light sent from God, it really doesn't matter Any of these are easily done for God. However he did it, God sends these magi a message that they can understand. A king is born with relevance not just for his people but for the whole world. A Roman historian from the first century called Tacitus, he wrote, the general belief is that a comet means a change of emperor. And both Tacitus and another historian, Suetonius, wrote that People at that time were expecting a world ruler to come from Judea. Suetonius wrote, An ancient superstition was current in the East that out of Judea would come the rulers of the world. Possibly the Magi were even aware of the Jewish Jewish scriptures, the Bible, where there's clear expectation of a world ruler to come, like the ancient book of Numbers in chapter 4, where a foreigner named Balaam, a man a bit like the Magi, travelled to Israel and prophesied, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Now, we don't get the backstory of these mysterious magi, but we do see God letting these foreigners see something of his significance, something of the significance of what's going on. But his own people in Jerusalem, who should have been waiting for God to break into history, they're caught by surprise. And when they hear about these magi seeking their king, they're unsettled, but they don't do anything about it. The religious leaders believed that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So what do they do? Nothing. Do you know how far Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? It's it's 10 kilometers. And they don't even bother to take the trip to Bethlehem to check it out. They ignore Jesus. Now, this is probably still the normal response to Jesus today. It's the response where we don't find God's gift all that gripping. It's to find that the gift is just not speaking to us where we're at. It's not that we're outright rejecting it or hostile to it. It's just not what I feel I need or want right now. It's the most common response to Jesus, but it's probably the worst of the lot because it's the most bland. It's the most inappropriate. It's... it's, in some ways, the most offensive to God. Because at least a violent response recognises something of the truth of who God is and His power. 
But when we hear of the gift, the extreme lengths that God goes to, and we think, that's nice. Well, a response like that says that we believe about the giver that he's bland and unimportant and harmless. And that's offensive to God. Let's look at the other responses we see in Matthew. The second response is one of pure abhorrence. If these people were singing, O come all ye faithful, in the chorus they'd sing, O come, let us abhor him. And this is Herod's response, of course. Herod's not at all happy about these foreigners turning up asking for this baby born king of the Jews. Now, Herod, I reckon he sounds to us a bit of a ridiculous character, don't you reckon? Grown man, scared of a little baby. But Herod was a real person in history. And what he does here in this story is completely consistent with his character. Herod, he got his position the old-fashioned way. He paid for it with blood, not his, but other people's. He was a client king under the Romans, and he held on to his position ruthlessly. And he was a bit paranoid, but probably for good reason. He wasn't a proper Jew, actually. He was an Idumean. He taxed the people terribly. He was a king under the enemy of the people, Rome. And so he, could, he had good reason to be terrified of revolt against him. Herod had even killed three of his own sons on the suspicion that they were plotting against him. He knew the hope of the people was a long-expected Messiah, a king who would save his people, and he hates the idea of losing power. And so he finds out where the Messiah is prophesied to be born in Scripture, and he sets up a secret meeting with the Magi, and then he helps them on their journey with a sinister motive. His plan is to do away with his young rival. So when the Magi don't come back, he's furious and he has no qualms about taking plan B, which was to kill all the boys in the area under two. Herod abhors the idea of surrendering his rule to anyone, even if they are God's promised king. Now, I reckon this is probably a less common response to Jesus, but it's still possible for us. We could have a strong reaction against what God's doing and hate Jesus, we'd still see this response today. Some atheists seem to be saying, I don't believe in God, while at the same time saying, and I hate him. Some people on the extreme left have a hatred of Jesus and and seem to want to eradicate his name from public life completely. I don't know if you've ever met people who get agitated when you talk about Jesus. There are Christians still, more than ever actually, killed around the world because people hate them worshipping Jesus. There are still extreme responses to Jesus like Herod's. And in another way, this kind of response could be closer to home than we think. What disturbed Herod was the idea of surrendering his authority. And we could be similar in a way. We could hate the idea of Jesus thinking that he has the right to tell me how to live, tell me what to do. There's one more response we see in Matthew. And the third response is adoration. These are the people who'd be singing in the chorus, O come, let us adore him. It's the Magi's response. The Magi, they travel from a distant land, probably Persia, modern-day Iran. They overcome obstacles, they seek Jesus out, they come to worship God's chosen king who'll bring about the dawning of a new era. And when they find him in verse 11, they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense 
and myrrh. They see something of who this child really is and they adore him. And ask, if we properly understand the gift and what it says about the giver and about us, the receivers, then we'd see that this is the natural response. God is taking drastic action to break through to us. God is giving himself to us, making it possible to have a relationship with him. And the right, reasonable, pure, authentic response to God's gift is worship or adoration. I heard a story of some parents of of teenage boys who sometimes when one of their kids is going through a a real bad patch and is, is treating them terribly, they try to do something just to break through to them. Like if their son's done something awful and he's been cold and, and, and distant and rebellious, occasionally what they do is something like just take them to McDonald's. Now, it sounds like an approach that would be seeming to reward bad behaviour, but it's not. It's an act of love trying to break through to them. They might say to their son something like, you don't deserve this given what you've done, but I, I want you to know that I love you. And they said that sometimes it's it's like the right gift at the right time. It breaks through. It can be powerful and bring about a change in the relationship. This gift that God gives us is like this on a grand scale. Christmas is God breaking through to us, making a statement to us, making a real way back to him by giving himself to us in Jesus. Come to save us, come to die for us, come to be our king. God is the one who shows himself to be compassionate and kind and loving. We are the ones who show ourselves to be cold and distant and lost. But God wants us to give up on being like that and to come back to him by giving up ignoring him, giving up hating him. And yes, he he really does actually want us to adore him. You know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, I adore my kids. I adore my wife. I want them to do the same. And God wants a relationship even closer to us than we might have with kids or spouse. And you're about to rush into what's probably going to be a busy day. And and right now, I I wouldn't blame you if you're mentally placing that turkey into the oven and thinking about 200 or 220 degrees. But just before you embrace the chaos, just before you, you uh, head out into the day this Christmas, I've got two questions for you to finish. First, if you were to think back over the last 12 months, which of these three responses to God best describes how you've responded to Him? Adoring Him? Raging against Him? Or just plain simple ignoring him and one more question what do you want for the next 12 months you know be honest with yourself for some of us we have been ignoring God and we're happy with that we're comfortable with life going on like that some of us are raging against God and and we can't imagine being able to give that up But some of us might be wanting something new. Do you want 
that kind of relationship with God where you adore him, where you adore the God who values you, who made you, who wants to know you. If adoring God is what you're thinking, can I encourage you to do something about it, like now even, because it's what God wants for you. It's why he's made you. It's what Christmas is all about. It, It could even be why he's brought you here today. If you want that, but you're not even sure what adoring God looks like, why don't you write your name down in the communication slip in those leaflets that you got as you came in. There's a box at the back. These are for everyone. If you want to communicate anything else to us or just wish us a Merry Christmas, please fill those in. Put them in the box as you go out. But if you're actually wanting to figure out what does it actually mean to adore God in the real, the real world, write your name down. Tick, tick that box that you want to find out more. And... I'll get in contact after Christmas and help you figure out what it looks like. Let me pray for us and thank God for what he's done for us. Heavenly Father, it's mind-boggling that you would want to know us, not only to make us and let us go, but you want to know us intimately. Lord, you want a relationship that's meaningful and real and life-changing, powerful with us. Lord, we thank you for the statement that you made in sending Christ. And more than just a statement, the action, Christ growing and dying for us, rising as our Lord and King, so that we could know you forever, so that we could fulfill our purpose in life and our purpose for all eternity. Lord, today as we celebrate so much, we also want to celebrate what you've done for us in Christ and thank you so much for him. And we pray in his name. Amen.